Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. What's going on? <laughs> I love. Uh, I don't have anything funny to say. Sorry. I love so. calling Corey out when he's still looking at his computer. <laughs> it's like a deer in headlights. Yeah, he's <laughs> not ready to talk yet. It's good. Uh, last episode, we were talking about well, the conflict that kind of has been heating up in the news over in Israel, which always brings me back to Bible prophecy and the. The lineage, the the culture of people that um, the Lord has recorded our world history through in the Bible, the fact that they're going to one day acknowledge Jesus as their Savior, and when whenever things whenever they show up in the news, I always wonder: Is this the great time? Is this the great movement that um, that we'll start seeing that fulfilled? Uh, we know the Lamanites, the people in America are going to come back to a knowledge of Jesus through the covenants, through the Book of Mormon. Uh, we believe the Book of Mormon will play a part in convincing the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God as well. And it will also uh, bring us into a greater relationship with Jesus if we repent as Gentiles and acknowledge him as our Savior as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's this great prophecy played out in the Book of Mormon that kind of uh, gives us a a picture of what's going to transpire, and we call it the parable of the olive tree, and I'm sure people have sat through several classes on this, but it's something that I don't have really written in my heart. I have to continually look at it and try to understand it, so maybe, Corey, today we can talk about that parable and look at world history and where we're at today and how that uh, what we can expect in the future. What do you think? Hey, um, this is a cool topic. It's something, like you say, keep visiting over and over again, and, and there's information that comes out in different ways and different times from it. Um, honestly, in my younger years, you know, college days, whatever, I remember uh, I, I started marking my Book of Mormon that I had, and uh, those 10 pages or so, the parable of the olive tree, had no marks in it at all. I just kind of thought it was like, you know, like politicians <laughs> talk about flyover country, you know, where we live. And it was sort of like flyover scripture. Oh, this is this, this story about the trees and all this stuff. Doesn't have anything to do with whatever, you know. I wanted to find something that prophesied of destruction or whatever, you know, who knows. Uh-huh. But now um, having read it and then seen what it's about, it's like, man, these scriptures became like more for me personally, more marked up than anything because they tell a beautiful story and they tell the story of how Israel gets restored to God. And this this is interesting in on many, many levels. One is that what we call the parable of the olive tree was something that was in the brass plates that Lehi brought with their family to the Americas and had to refer to. And that 10 pages or so in the Book of Mormon seems to be a word-for-word verbatim uh, copy of what the story was. And it wasn't included until Nephi's brother Jacob was in charge of the plates, and he includes it in his his story. Well, a parable is interesting, and I think it was Joseph Smith who was once asked by someone, hey, how do you understand what a parable is? And 
this is what I remember reading in church history. Joseph's response was, first, you have to determine what is the question that prompted the parable. The parable is an answer to a question. And so what was the original question that was the reason why a parable was given? And so that is kind of a good place to start. Um, let me ask you, Mr. Barrett, in your understanding of the parable of the olive tree, uh, have you ever come across the question that prompted it? I probably did and have forgotten it <laughs> or never thought about it, so no. Okay, well, I uh, got to put you on the spot, right? Um, so in this, the third chapter of Jacob in the Book of Mormon, in the earliest version, it's the third chapter, um, this is, Jacob is talking about the fact that the Jews would fall away. And this question comes up that well, the, the Jews were, uh, it says, um, the Jews were stiff-necked people. They despised the words of plainness, killed the prophets, sought for things they could not understand. This is from Jacob chapter 3, verse 22 in the earliest version. And he says, wherefore, because of their blindness, which blindness came by looking beyond the mark, that looking beyond the mark is actually a, a Hebrew phrase. Uh, he said, they must needs fall. And he says, for God hath taken away his plainness from them and delivered unto them many things that they could not understand because they desired it. So this is interesting. God has been plain with all people. The Book of Mormon is the example of plainness. The Jews thought God can't be plain. It can't be, can't be God if it's plain, right? Is um, do you find that as a pattern through um, recorded history or just through life that um, God is? You know, there's there's no shadow of turning in Him. He is one holy, just, uh, just source of love. He doesn't sin. He doesn't err. He doesn't. He's not imperfect. He's perfect in every way, and yet when his creation that he makes becomes uh, wayward or um, continually sins maybe against truth that they should know or have available to them, he then grants to them what they desire, <laughs> even if it's the idols of their heart. It's like he allows them to go that path. And, and I see that as even though he does that, that's part of the opposition in all things. Like if, if you're going to continue to desire sin, then I will let sin proliferate among you and be that opposition to me. Uh, that's what a, what a um, marvelous thing that our creator does. <laughs> you know, that, I, I love that. I was just going to say this, this story in the Old Testament, in the Exodus story, when it's like the, the Israelites are complaining. When you said that, Mike, this just popped into my mind. They're complaining about this manna. This man is terrible. We want, we want quail. And, and then God says, you like quail? Okay. So quail falls down out of heaven until it's up to their waist and it's rotting and they're forced to eat it. And it's, it literally says coming out their noses Ugh. and people are dying because of all this quail. And it's like, you wanted quail? You got quail. You know? Yeah. And, and, and so, but to your point again, it's because God created us in his image of, of his character in that we have a will and we can choose. And, and what God demonstrates is that See, you're free to choose, but you don't always make the best choice. And and so he allows that, I think, to demonstrate. Yeah. You don't want plainness? Here, you can have confusion. I'll give you confusion, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
So sorry to get you off topic. I was no, just, it's, it's, I think it's all part of the topic, really. Right. So go. So back to that. What they what they they stumbled because they they desired uh, they wanted to look beyond the plainness. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what it says. So it, Jacob chapter three verse twenty four <clears throat> says, "For God hath taken away his plainness from them, delivered them to many things they can't understand, because they desired it, and because they desired it, God hath done it." That they might stumble. It's like, here you go. You want it? You got it. And so then Jacob speaks and says, And now I, Jacob, am led by the Spirit unto prophesying, for I perceive by the workings of the Spirit which is in me that by the stumbling of the Jews they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have safe foundation. So right here, this is you know 500-plus years before Christ, Jacob is saying, you know what, the Lord's speaking to me and showing me that because of these non-plain things that the Jews want, that they're also going to miss the point of Christ. The whole Mosaic law was designed to point them towards Christ, and they missed that. He says, they're going to reject the stone upon which they might build. That was Jesus, the, the rock, right? And so he continues, though, he says, but behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and last and only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And so this is, here's this point about finding the question of the parable. In verse 28, Jacob says, asks this question, and now my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it that it might become the head of their corner? Question mark. So, so again, he's he's saying, how is it that after they've rejected Jesus, they could come back? How is it they will come back? That's the question. That's the question. I'm writing it down. So next time you ask me, I'll remember. <laughs> well, and and here's the point: because if we don't understand the question, we don't always get the purpose of the prophecy. So this whole parable that's about to unfold is answering this question, how is it that the Jews who stumbled and missed the point of Jesus will ever come back and make him their foundation? Okay. So that's it. And so um, now to preface this a little bit, what what's, I just, I don't know, this is fascinating to me. Uh, this parable of the olive tree was written by a man named Zenos, Z-E-N-O-S. And, and Jacob has a son named Enos, E-N-O-S. And I wonder if that was a derivative of that name. And that doesn't really have anything to do with the podcast today. But, but I, liked, I liked the sister named Venus. She had some good things to say, too. <laughs> right. Uh, call him off for dinner. Enos, Enos, Venus. <laughs> <laughs> so what this prophecy is, It's it was written in the plates of brass by a man named Zenos, who was apparently a prophet of Israel. But what's really, and these are just words that sometimes you read between the lines, what was interesting is that Zenos wasn't just considered a prophet. He was classified later by, um, uh, oh, I think it was Alma, who says, uh, I'm going to look it up here. Uh, he, He referred to them as the prophet of old. Yeah, Alma 16, 177. This is Alma speaking to the Zormites or whoever, and it says to them, 
he's trying to convince them of Christ. And, and this is the part that you explained so beautifully some podcasts back about planting the seed. And, and this, this is all in the context of planting that seed of Christ in our heart. But he mentions, he says, and he's trying to support his word with the scriptures that apparently they have. And he's speaking to the poor people that have been cast out of their synagogues. And he says, you know, don't suppose that you can't worship God. You greatly err, you know, because you've been cast out of your synagogues. Um, he says, uh, you greatly err, you have, and you need to search the scriptures for if you suppose that they have taught you this, you do not understand them. Then he says, asks them a question. Do you remember to have read what Zenos, the prophet of old, hath said concerning prayer or worship? And it's interesting because he calls him the prophet of old. Without going through all the scriptures, Zenos lived well before Isaiah and the people we consider prophets, but he somehow came after Abraham. And there's some scriptures in the Book of Mormon that I won't go to right now that sort of put where he, he lived. But he was, he was someone who lived way, way back, maybe even... Um, before Moses is what I'm saying before Israel was Israel, but he was preaching Christ and it said, and they killed him for that. He was, he was teaching about Christ. And so he was a prophet of old. And it's interesting then his, his prophecy to the house of Israel was something that he was, he wasn't maybe even a descendant, you know, like through we we get Jacob and maybe, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was after Jacob, and his 12 sons who became Israel, or maybe he was in that same time period. We, we don't know, but they called him the prophet of old. And so this parable comes way, way early in the years of Israel, maybe even precedes the house of Israel people is what I'm saying. Hmm. So, but it's included in the plates of brass. And just one other little tangent to this is that this was apparently common knowledge in Israel because without mentioning the word Zenos and without mentioning the, the history of the record, Paul, a couple places, refers to grafting and Israel coming back to a knowledge of the truth and uses the same language, but it's only a verse or two in the New Testament. But it's not like introduced or explained as if, you know, if, if I had, I, I wouldn't have to explain if I just said, you know, President Trump or President Biden, you'd, you'd know who I was talking about without having to say, well, we have this election every four years and we have this, you know, people and they vote and Republicans and Democrats, you know, I wouldn't have to preface it or build it up because, you know, well, it's the same way that this parable of the olive tree is is referenced in a couple places in the new testament without any buildup because it was like common knowledge in that day and and i think the people knew who zenos was but we lost that maybe because the records that contained it were taken by lehi i don't know uh but i have a feeling you know it could be a really cool national treasure movie someday (laughs) to go to the vatican and find that there's a lot of records in the basement of the vatican behind sealed doors that might corroborate with all this. You know, that's just my feeling. I can't prove that, but I have a feeling it's somewhere, you know, mm. somewhere else. And that could be one of the things too that makes people take a look at the Book of Mormon someday. Maybe this trans, maybe this record of Zenus could be found somewhere else in some Dead Sea Scroll cave or something like that. And uh, then it's like, okay, how do you explain that? Here's over ten pages in American English that exactly corroborate with what they'll probably find in. Uh, a prehistoric Hebrew language, some script, you know, that pre- preceded <laughs> them, right? I, I think about that, and then I think, oh, the, it would make it too easy then that you'd have to accept the book, and God always yeah. just wants to yeah. maybe leave it. Uh, well, you know, one other thing, and I, 
it might take a couple podcasts for me to get all these little details out before we get to the parable of the olive tree. But going back to this prophet of old of Zenos, well, what's beautiful is starting in Alma 16, verse 178, um, he, it's a prayer of Zenos, and he says, Thou art merciful, O God, for thou hast heard my prayer when I was in the wilderness. Thou art merciful when I prayed concerning those which were my enemies, and thou did turn them to me. Yea, God, thou art merciful when I cry unto thee in my field and did cry unto thee in prayer, and thou didst hear me. And 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 he continues his prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. Well, I was reading online of uh, a Hebrew worshiper, and I didn't save the reference. I've been looking for this for, for weeks now. I found an article that described not just Hebrew poetry, like we've talked about from time to time, that may have been typical of Isaiah's period, but they said even the Hebrew poetry forms went through different um, classifications over the years. You know how languages change. They said the poetic forms change. And he said, the, the writer, uh, the woman who wrote this article said, if you look at the pre-classical, you know, the early, early Hebrew poetry, they said it always included these elements, uh, something in the past, something in the present, and something in the future. And when I read this prayer of Zenos, which he was a prophet of old, which could have been the earliest beginnings of the Hebrew language in the house of Israel, his prayer follows all that formula that they said has to, has, has to be present for something to be the earliest form of Hebrew writing. And it's exactly that. And these statements, thou art merciful, God, thou art merciful, God, yea, you've been merciful to me. That repetition, that's, that's classic Hebrew poetry. But what he says in this prayer that's found in the 16th uh, chapter of Alma is he, he talks about how God was merciful to him all his life, how God is merciful now, and how God will be merciful to him in the future. And it, it follows all those patterns of the old poetry. And it's just like, it's astounding to me that words that we've read for years and generations really in the church, we don't realize what we're holding in our hand. We're holding beautiful, pure evidence that this is you know, a truly uh, a book of Hebrew ancient work, and um, and it's been given to us. You know, we're responsible for it now. But so that's just a little thing about Zenus is that no one could have made that up and just guessed and included this. Oh, it's like a ten sentence prayer, and then only to realize it perfectly fits the ancient format of a Hebrew Hebrew prayer. You know, so so we get we get more than just the parable of Zenus which is the parable of the olive tree in the Book of Mormon, we get some of his other writings, and some of it are included later. Like I said, it's a prayer that's included by Alma many years later after Jacob writes. But it, they're, they're continually going back to Zenos, and his words are amazing. So let's turn back to Jacob 3, and, and that's kind of uh, the beginning of the story. Okay. All right. So, so Jacob asked this question. He said, uh, Do you remember to have read what Zenos, the prophet of old, said concerning prayer or worship? Uh, oh, wait, I'm on the wrong, <laughs> I got the wrong one, sorry. Uh, back to Jacob 3. So <clears throat> let me read Jacob three twenty-eight. 28. Uh, Beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can never build upon it, that it might be head of the corner? So that's the question that starts the parable. Then Jacob states, Behold, my beloved brethren, 
I will unfold this mystery to you if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over anxiety for you. So it's kind of like saying, Hey, I hope I don't mess up. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I wonder if anybody's ever felt that before they preached. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over anxiety. Well, so then he prompts the people, do ye not remember to have read the words of the prophet Zenos, which spake unto the house of Israel saying, so even there is a clue. He's saying, he didn't say, do you not remember to have heard it? He said to have read the words. And I take that to mean that somewhere in America, these words were distributed. Now, will we find those someday too here in America? It could very well be. So so he's telling the people in 500-ish BC here in the United States, you've or here in the Americas, do you remember what Zena said? He says, hearken ye, O house of Israel, and hear the words of me, a prophet of the Lord. He says, I will liken you, O house of Israel, to a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard, and it grew and waxed old and began to decay. So so the story starts out, and I know we won't read every verse, but it's the whole comparison is a metaphor, it's an analogy, and the, the names of the people and their purposes and the trees, they all have a symbolism. And, and so he tells us right off the bat, he says, I'm going to compare... House of Israel, those twelve tribes of Israel, to a, not just a tree, but a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard, and it grew old and began to decay. Um, that tame tree is important because this later is compared to wild trees, and I do have a story about that, which I may have shared at one time. The difference I learned the difference between tame and wild trees. Uh, years ago in the 1990s, I built a house in the country and the house was uh, on wooded land and there had been some huge great oak trees and hickory trees on the land. Most of the oak trees had been cut down by some people for firewood. It was just a, a shame. But there were a lot of hickory trees left and they had grown up really tall and uh, straight. They were under the shade of some of these oak trees. So they were, they were extra tall and kind of skinny trying to trying to find light at one point in time when the oak trees were surrounding them. But I wanted to put my house where some of these trees were, and I thought, well, I don't want to lose the trees. I always felt bad about ever cutting a live tree. Mm-hmm. So I, I hired a guy to come out and uh, with one of these big tree-moving machines, like a huge one. In fact, the first one he brought out, I said, no, this isn't going to work. I need a bigger one because these were big trees, but they were all wild trees. They had just grown from hickory seed nuts that fell in the ground and started. They weren't ever originally intentionally planted. They were just wild trees, but it was where I wanted to put my house. And there was like uh, six of these trees I wanted to move. And so he comes back the next day with a huge, huge machine and he starts moving these machines. And it's like, you know, this big triangle thing that comes down and, and Mm -hmm. digs around the roots and lifts it up and moves it. And, and uh, it was fun to watch. And back then it was, it was a lot of money, but it was, it would be even a whole lot more now. I think he was charging like 60 bucks a tree, but I think today it'd probably be about more like $300 a tree. Wow. That seems cheap. It seems cheap. But back then it was like, he said, Oh, I hate to tell you, it's going to be like 60 bucks a tree. Well, nevertheless, this was like 30 years ago or two or 20 something years ago. What, what the point was is that after he moves these trees, now, Granted, they're all wild trees, and I'm writing the check to this guy. He just kind of says matter-of-factly. He says, oh, yeah, 
I give maybe one in five or one in six trees are going to make it after, <laughs> after, after I pay him for it. Yeah. He doesn't tell me this up front. He goes, yeah, you really don't want to do this. And I'm like, what? You should have just... You should have just picked the tree that was going to make it and move that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, here, here's the, and the guy was right, but all of them died. None of them oh. made it. And <clears throat> a couple years later, and this is what he explained to me. He said, uh, wild trees aren't at all like a tame tree. You know, you buy a, a tree from Home Depot and it's in this bucket and the roots have been uh, cultured and, and, and they're contained all within this bucket of that you get. And then when it plants in the ground, it maintains that nice kind of ball shape and the the tree itself is designed that the way God made trees and leaves is that the rain that falls on it, it sort of funnels the water to the base of the tree too, so that it can sustain itself. It's it, the, the branches might be out farther, but, but then it'll congregate water at the base. And so that's by design to keep the tree alive. He said, but tame trees are intentionally planted. The roots are prepared so that they'll stay nice and tight. And um, everything about the tree has been prepared and pruned and cropped. He said, but a wild tree, he said, a wild tree might have one root that just kind of runs sideways for 20 yards or something. And he said, it's not like this ball of roots. And he said, chances are on every one of these trees. And he's explaining this to me as he's putting the check in his pocket. You know, he said, <laughs> he said, we probably clipped the only real living roots on all these things. So when we replant the trees, there's not going to be any real roots to support them. He said, I would suggest you buy some of this root, root stimulator stuff and pour it around all the base of these and maybe it can make the roots grow. But it was one of these things I look back on and think, I'm, I'm thankful for this story because it helped me understand this parable of the olive tree a little bit better. You know? So but in reality, you could have just had some good firewood. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what it became. So, um, so this master has this tree that was intentionally planted, the tame tree. And it's beginning to die. And the reason he likes this is he says he, uh, he pruned it and he digged about it and nourished it according to his word. Well, so the tree is the house of Israel. The, the master is this master of the vineyard. This is, this is God. And these acts of pruning, digging, and nourishing are things like preaching and teaching and sharing the word. And that's what God does for us. That's what God had done for the house of Israel. That's why he sent prophets among them was to share his word, to nourish it, right? And so the, the pruning is the intentional correction and the, the digging and the nourishing is sharing the word. All these things that God does for us. And this tree, nevertheless, was beginning to die. And he said, uh, it came to pass after many days, it began to put forth somewhat a little young and tender branches. But behold, the main top thereof began to perish. Well, this is another interesting thing I learned about olive trees. And again, the fact that it's not just any tree, but it's an olive tree uh, helps. When we think of branches growing off a tree, we, we usually think, of, well, a branch is kind of coming off of branches, you know, little little shoots off a main thing. But on an olive tree, it's different. The olive tree shoots start from the base of the plant and they, they grow from the ground and, and they kind of meld into the trunk of the tree. And so what happens is that if you see an olive tree, uh, maybe we can put one on the show notes. As they get older, they just get bigger and bigger and bigger around because these shoots are coming off the bottom of the tree. So in this description, he says, uh, and see, Joseph Smith probably wouldn't have known this. I don't think even olive trees were, were growing in America then. But this, 
uh, these young and tender branches, he says the main began to perish. So the top part of the tree was dying, but there was tender branches coming off the base. And and the base of these trees gets bigger and bigger. And this is why to uh, the Israelites, the olive tree was sort of a symbol of like everlasting life, if you will, because they looked like if, if they were properly nourished, they'd just keep putting shoots out from the base and, and the trunk of it would just kind of meld into those new shoots and it would just continually kind of grow outward. You just get this kind of bigger and wider base. And, and, and so the top would die, but the bottom would wow. have more stuff. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, did you have something you want to say? No, no, um, no, that's, that's cool. Yeah. Well, so, so the master speaks and he says, it grieves me that I should lose this tree and wherefore, and he's speaking to his servant Go and pluck the branches from the wild tree and bring it hither to me, and we will pluck off the main branches which are beginning to wither away, and we will cast them into the fire that they could be burned. And so uh, I will take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. So one of the things that the Book of Mormon teaches early on in other scripture that correlates back to this is the breaking off of branches— the Book of Mormon teaches that God led righteous people away from Jerusalem at more times than just Lehi. Um, and the, this story bears this out, but righteous people were representative of these new tender branches that were, were growing and, and coming off the tree. And when God leads them away, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this original tree because he said, I like the fruit there of it. And he said, the tree's about to die, but I'm going to take these branches and I'm going to plant them in other places. So I'll have still the original tree growing, but it'll just be a new tree. The same fruit will be born from it. So that's the idea. As he said, I wanted to sustain this, this tree somehow by, by replanting its children branches, if you will. And then he says, and it doesn't matter to me if the root of this tree dies, that I can preserve the fruit to myself. So I will take these young branches and graft them wherever I want take these branches of the wild tree and graft them in in the stead thereof. So he breaks off the tame branches, plants them somewhere else, and then he gets wild trees that were just some of the trees growing to graft them on to try to keep the, the roots of this tree alive. But he said, but if it dies, it dies as long as I get these other trees growing. But the, the idea of the branches wild grafted in were, were the Gentiles. This is, again, the house of Israel is the main tree, but grafting in is explained, and I'll give some of these scriptures here in a minute. Grafting in is defined as coming to a knowledge of Christ. That's how the Book of Mormon defines grafting in. And when he grafts other tr branches from wild trees into this main tame tree, it's representative of other Gentiles, specifically other people or nations, coming to a knowledge of Christ through this house of Israel. And so... They're grafted onto this tree to help keep it alive, literally. Um, and then he says, and he says, and now these which I have plucked off will cast in the fire and burn them that they might not cumber the ground in my vineyard. So we get another aspect, and this is like destruction that's happened to Israel. The 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 things that weren't producing, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, who so doesn't bear fruit, I will. I'm going to prune. That's John 15. And cast in the fire. This this is the same idea that we see in Lehi's day, where the corruption going on in Jerusalem that Jeremiah writes of. You know, the the prophets were lined up at the 
at the uh, and the, the priests rather were lined up at the harlots' homes is what Jeremiah is writing about. You know that's how corrupt their society, church, state became. Those were the dead branches on the tree that were being cut off and thrown in the fire. So we see all these things of Israel's history being born out in this tree. The, the dead bad parts cut off. We see wild tree branches grafted in. That's Gentiles coming in. And then we see God taking of the new shoots. These were the righteous people and leading them somewhere else. And and not just Lehi, but that's the, the story that we basically get. So so that's how the story, story sets up. And then this Lord of the Vineyard causes that um, these branches, uh, the, the main tree, he said, he caused that it should be digged about and pruned and nourished despite breaking off the branches and putting in these wild branches grafted on. He says, saying that it grieveth me that I would lose this tree. It's like, I don't want to lose the house of Israel, even though I've led some people away. So he's still working with the main old dead dying tree. Wherefore, that perhaps I might preserve the roots thereof, that they might not perish. I might preserve them unto myself. I have done this thing. So the roots. This is for people who read the um, parable of the olive tree. Many things are explained through the metaphor. You know, the other scriptures say, hey, like Jacob states, this tame dying tree is like to the house of Israel. And it, it compares other things, grafting in, coming to a knowledge of Christ. These are all through other scriptures. But the roots for many people over generations haven't been clearly identified, or if they have, I think they've been a little bit misidentified. And I'm going to tell you straight up what I think they they really do mean. Some people said, well, the roots is just the gospel. You know, that's the part that's alive. But the roots, I think, are more than that. The roots are the covenants God made with Israel. And the roots are also like the prayers of those like who have gone be, before us, who says their words like come forth out of the dust. They're it's like how Enos prays after his conversion and and then all he wants is for his people to survive. You know, he prays for the Lamanites. We talked about that. Those prayers and those promises that God made with all those forefathers and those covenants he made for Israel to someday blossom again, those, I believe, are what the roots are. And, and he's like, what we find in the end of the story is you said that the tree, this original tree that looks like it's going to die, ends up living. And why? He says it's because of what happens. He said the roots were still alive. He said despite all the bad fruit that it, it creates later, the roots are still alive. And this is important. It's what these covenants are and this promise of the Book of Mormon specifically <clears throat> that we read about these promises God made to the forefathers that Israel will return to Christ. And, and, and those are the roots. So that's kind of like jumping way ahead to the end of the story, but I think it's important to establish up front. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just taking notes. Well, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I'm teaching a class. So that's all right. be that way. That's all right. But, well, talk to me, Mike. You, you had to clear your throat. That means you weren't able to speak for a long time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did. Well, I looked up some pictures of olive tree, and it is fantastic to look at. Um, the way they grow, there's there's pictures of like a root, like one root coming up and just wrapping around the whole trunk and kind of melting together. So that that gives you, a, I think it gives you a good word picture of 
this parable. So I, anybody listening, just Google. I, I'll we can put some show notes of it. it's just as easy. I just Google uh, pictures of olive tree trunk mm-hmm. and see get a picture while you're listening as to what what we're actually talking about in God's work. Yeah, yeah. I like that the you saying the um, it's actually the recorded word and the covenants by these different roots. Otherwise, what what good would they be? It would just come and gone, but there had to be a posterity or a, uh, some type of fruit to, to bring back to the, to the world. I mean, that would be God's purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of these, uh, one of these other messages that comes out in the Book of Mormon, and, and in fact, it goes back to that same 16th chapter of Alma where he mentions Zenos, the prophet of old. He mentions Moses, and he said, hey, and Moses prophesied to you about this Savior who was going to come, and Moses told you about the broken heart and contrite spirit, and it's included in plain words there. And so I'm, I'm guessing there's probably other writings of Moses that were in the brass plates that weren't maybe included in the classic Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you know, there was other things. But again, this goes back to this. The idea of fruit, I believe, is is our response to Christ. I mean, God wants people who come to him in a broken heart and contrite spirit and humility and, and love him and, and want to serve him and, and give our our all to him. And, and I think that's what's represented by the fruit that he wants in the end. And it might re- represent other things too. The Nephi, Lehi's vision, the fruit of their trees represents God's love, greatest, you know, whiter than all that is white, pure than all that is pure. But in this case... I think the fruit represents um, the thing that he wants is us living in harmony with him. And I think that's kind of what this idea of the fruit is, is that at one point in time, it, it seems that the prophet's words were all understood. And when Lehi, I'm sorry, when, when Zena says, hey, originally there was fruit and the master had it and it was good, but it started to decay and the tree was dying. It points to at some point in Israel's history they were also living in harmony with him. Maybe it didn't last very long, but at one point in time, there there was a harmonious relationship. And God wants that again with, with all of his people. It's like they knew him, and, and they didn't just understand symbols about him. Uh, they, un- they understood exactly who he was and how to come to him in salvation. So, so the story is about coming back to God and having a relationship with him. And when the tree dies, and later you find out that it starts to bear fruit, but none of it is good. Um, he's he's like, this isn't the purpose. This isn't the point. We got to get back to the fruit that was good, and how are we going to do that? And and this story unfolds. And to, to talk about it in major bullet points first, you know, this just sets up the story. What we've talked about is that this this tree begins to die, and so these grafts that were grafted in from the wild tree, they they make the tree bear fruit. But at one point in time. The master comes and he samples all the fruit, and it says he tastes of every single kind of fruit where the wild branches were grafted in, and he says he tasted of every type, and none of it was good. None of it was good. And what that represents is when the Book of Mormon talks about it, it talks about, hey, Nephi says, and I saw many churches built up among the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles were represented by the wild branches grafted in. They were on this mother tree. They had, that was their life now. But the fruit that they bore from being grafted in didn't resemble the original fruit. And that's why you've, you look around us now and you've got, 
you know, I mean, you can talk about things within the restoration, but you've got some people preaching these rapture doctrines, and and then you've got some people preaching uh, predestination doctrines, and then you've got some people telling baptizing children doctrines, and then you've got some people preaching no baptism is required, and you've got all these different flavors of Gentile Christianity that are all represented by the wild fruit the master tastes and says none of it is good, none of it is good. And that's, this is the interesting part of the story because remember the early descriptions of not just the Jews that we read, but that the Gentiles would stumble. Nephi's vision is that, hey, I saw the Gentiles stumble because of plain and precious things moved out, of, removed from the word. So God's purpose is to restore the, us to the truth by being so gracious that he digs these plates up out of the earth for us to find so that we can have the pure word restored to the Gentiles. And what do we do? We mock it and reject it, you know, same way. But what happens in the end of this parable, and I'm, I'm jumping over a lot of the scripture that I think we can come back to, is that these transplants, that are the little shoots that were broken off, they thrive for a while, and then they all start to perish too. And in the end, the way that the story is resolved is that the master of the vineyard says, well, hey, I took these original shoots and I planted them in way other parts of the vineyard, meaning different parts of the world, some of it in a very choice, precious ground. And he takes from that one, and, and this is Lehi's family, their, their heritage, and that tree had prospered for a while, but then it began to decay. But he said, but you know what? He said, it's still part of the mother tree. And he doesn't use the word DNA, but the DNA is the same. And he said, I've realized that the roots are still alive on this original tree and it's dying. He said, and the branches are alive on these ones I transplanted. If I put them back together, I've got the same tree again. You know, I've got, there was a branch that was broken off and sent here and it's not doing so well, but the roots on the original tree are still there. Those are the covenants. What if I bring those back together? And so the way the story is resolved in the end, after a lot of lamenting and problems, is that the original broken off branch is grafted back onto the mother tree. And because now you've rematched the original branches with the original tree at a later day, it begins to bear the original fruit for the, for the first time again. And that grafting back in is defined in, and we'll, we'll cover some of these scriptures, like I said, separately, but grafting in means to come to a knowledge of Christ, to be brought back to him. And the graft of the branch that was broken off is this word of the Book of Mormon, and it's grafted back onto the house of Israel. And at the same time, what begins is a process of removing the bad influences. Remember these wild branches that were grafted in all produce weird fruit. Well, the master begins to systematically remove those, and he says, I can't do it too fast. He said, if I cut them all off at once, the whole tree's going to die. So he said, a little bit by little bit, as the tree gets strength, I'm going to trim off a little more. And in the end, what happens is that the, the good fruit begins to grow from these original branches that are grafted back in. And the bad part, the, the, the Gentile wild influence is removed, and in the end, the tree bears the original fruit again, and the master you know, calls people to work in that effort. They're few, but they, they do the digging and pruning, and they do the regrafting, and they do the plucking off of the old, and in the end, the tree is restored to what it was. Now, that's, that's what all the 10 pages kind of talk about of this parable, but the, but the meaning of it 
is exactly what the Book of Mormon has been saying all along. This word of the Book of Mormon is like the branch that was grafted off into the good part of ground. When the original tree is dying, that's Israel who's wandered from God, who doesn't spiritually you know, know God, and they're still confused by the law of Moses, and they're confused by all these worldly Gentile influences. You know, I, I love following this One for Israel website. I listen to their podcasts. I, I get their news updates because here's a people who are Israeli-born who have come to Jesus, and, and they're sharing this word with others. But so often, even when I hear their their testimonies, I feel like sometimes I'm just hearing like kind of like America crusade for Christ, but done in a Hebrew accent, you know, because I feel like too often they're getting the Gentile perspective of Jesus when they have their own, they don't even know about yet. You know, that's their own people's words Mm -hmm. about Jesus. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, maybe we see it in our lifetime, maybe we don't, but that they return to him. But this is the prophecy, regardless of when it happens. You know, it's selfish of me to think, hey, I want this to happen in my lifetime. It's going to happen regardless. But someday it's this word coming back to them, just like young Joseph who's taken to another country and when his family is starving, he nourishes his family, you know, by his prosperity and, and genius, saving his family and the nation and everything that this word going back to Israel has the same effect. It will be the thing that restores Israel to their proper relationship with God, and, and the world will see it and know. And at the same time, these Gentile influences uh, on Christianity become less and less as this true perspective becomes more and more. You know, And, and that's, that's the prophecy to unfold. You know, it's, it's powerful. Uh, I feel so, someone that asked me the other day, just texted me, someone who's been listening to the classes online, and uh, she said, you know, so well, what's your feeling on Revelation and Daniel and end-time prophecy? And my response was that, well, one, is that I don't think most of the books that are written about Revelation and Daniel are, are worth the paper they're written on because they're all written from a Gentile perspective that they think the prophecy is about them, first of all. I said, Daniel and Revelation were written by Jews, about Jews, and for Jews. Okay, I, said, I just want to clarify, most of the commentary on commentary, this. Commentary. Uh, oh, the I first thing you Daniel said that, I was like, you don't, no. you, you don't think Daniel and no, Revelation? No, 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 I meant the commentaries on them. Most, most people's meant, perspectives on yeah, them are I, wrong. I meant the, the, the books on the bookshelves. I got ahead of myself. That's yeah. uh, Thank you for correcting that. No, <laughs> and not you, Daniel Revelation. <laughs> listenership <laughs> the, dropped in half. Oh, no, uh, well, maybe we should just delete that. But this, the oh yeah, so many yeah, com- I'll take it out. Corey. There's so many, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, uh, this these commentaries written on are all written by Gentiles who think that the story is about us, and they're written about Israel by Israelites of of former days. Well, but the other half of it is that there's more prophecy in the Book of Mormon than I think when you put Daniel and Revelation together. There's a lot more prophecy that the world doesn't know about, and we as a people really don't know about, that tells a lot more of the story. You know, there is no rapturing of the good people off the earth. If you read the Book of Mormon, the good people stay on the earth, and they they defeat evil. They overcome this church that's a horror of all the earth. Uh, Israel gets restored to God. You know, none of these prophecies in these uh, Zondervan bookstore shelves full of Revelation and Daniel explanations ever include anything about the Jews returning to Christ or anything. That. They don't even talk about God's kingdom on earth. They just they just embellish this one theory of this rapture idea, and that's about it. And I'm like, I don't know. They uh, Someday the world's going to find all this prophecy of how Israel gets restored will really unfold before the eyes of the world and how the Book of Mormon has been telling it from the beginning. So 
anyhow, I would just, that's just my thoughts is that this real story of prophecy is contained back when you see what God has planned for Israel and, and how that's going to unfold someday. So the question, uh, how does, how does Israel, uh, return to Jesus after rejecting him or missing the plain, the plainness, how do they come back is, uh, this just kind of shows, this kind of just sums up, right? The first will be last and the last will be first. Yeah. This whole chiasm, this whole prophecy in Enos, you know, that's not a, Enos in Jacob. That's a, that's a really, really good point, Mike, because, it is the first and last. You know, the gospel started with Israel, and then the Gentiles were brought into it, and then the Gentiles diminish, and then Israel, uh, you know, is restored again in the end. And then in the in the final, you know, story is that this master of the vineyard who calls these servants and their few, they they restore this tree, and it says, and they enjoy the fruit of the vineyard for a long time. But then it talks about. But then in the end, when bad fruit begins to return to the vineyard, I'm going to cause it all to be burned with fire, and I'm going to have a new vineyard. And so, you know, it it takes us all the way to the very end of the world through this prophecy that um, this, this, you know, I don't think as a people we keep that in perspective, at least in our upbringing, to talk about Zion. We kind of say, hey, well, when Zion's here, it's kind of, whew, everything's done. And it's like, well, there's a thousand years to go. And, I mean, it is going to be this perfectly amazing place, and God will be here. But yet, in the end, the part that I wonder about and is that some people will still turn away, how that could possibly be after a thousand years, you know? Yeah, and— you brought out some scriptures uh, yesterday in class on the on the about the old things will be made new and, and a new there will even be a new heaven and a new earth and um, we've had uh, poetically or uh, the baptism of the earth through the flood that there'll be a baptism similarly a fire as the um, spirit recreates the earth and and makes all things new yeah yeah. Israel, so so the things we look forward to or that we expect to see in the news in our lifetime or in the history coming forth is that uh, the Gentiles' fruit is bad uh, and the uh, house of Israel and the Jews and, and the Lamanites and all of the posterity will return to the original um, gospel or return to God, to, to Christ. Yes. And there's a word that's, there's a, there's a place in the story where the master in the parable of the olive tree in the record of Zenos, where the, the master has, is lamenting. It's in the middle of the story where it's like all this work and he looks at the original tree and it's basically dead. The roots are alive. He looks at all these transplants and they've, while they, some of them did okay for a while, they aren't doing well either, and they aren't producing the good fruit. And he's got all these trees and all these efforts, and he's got no good fruit. And then he asked this question, and he's lamenting, and said, what happened? He said, "What?" this is uh, Jacob 3, around 100. He said, what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened my hand that I haven't nourished it? You know, I've nourished it. I've digged it, pruned it, uh, dunged it dunged it and I stretched forth my hand all the day long and the ends drawing nine it grieves me that I'm gonna have to hew down all the trees in my vineyard and burn them in the fire he says what has corrupted my vineyard so he's asked this and then the servant says is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard 
You know, he, he kind of makes it seem like he says, have not the branches thereof overcome the roots that are good. Somehow, maybe in a physical sense, being loftier or higher made the branches grow too much to overcome the roots. You see, what happened is that in a, in a spiritual sense, we grew away from the covenants and the promises of God. You know, the roots were where the truth was, and the branches just did their own thing, and they were, it's like they weren't connected. And, and in the story, he says, isn't it the loftiness somehow made the branches grow? But in a spiritual sense, this is where Isaiah begins his writings in Isaiah chapter 2, where he says, the loftiness of man will be bowed down to God. And this, this is the loftiness of our hearts is what has corrupted all this. It isn't a physical proximity of the, the vineyard was too high in elevation. It's that the hearts of man were too high in our own estimation of ourselves. And this is the problem since the beginning. It's the loftiness of our hearts. So that parable talks about the loftiness of the branches? Yeah, it's around verse 105. He says, the, the, the servant says, is it not the loftiness of that vineyard? Have not the branches overcome the roots thereof? And because the branches have overcome the roots, they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. See, these are like mm. the Gentiles who just grew in their own direction, had no idea of the covenants with Israel, had no idea of the promises of God. That's why I say those are the roots. Right? I see a picture of, of also like the church just adding to the simple doctrine of Christ and yes. just adding all of this other stuff and, and being this organization unto itself and just leaving the very plain, simple uh, gospel of come unto Christ and be, you know, be humble and meek and, and, and submit to him, right, and, and be broken and contrite. That's And we've replaced that with all kinds of doctrines and organization. And I mean, outside, and, outside of the church and inside the church, inside the church you've got people teaching this exaltation of people becoming gods and inhabiting their own planets. It's not about humility and mm -hmm. broken heart and contrite spirit. I mean, that's what happened within the Restoration. Within the Restoration, but I mean, look at other else. religions, the Vatican and the Pope and the— Jeez, uh, I mean, yeah. You can I mean, go to Hindu, Buddhism, all these religions. mega churches. Oh my goodness. Oh my, yeah, exactly. You Anything know? but a humble humility. Uh, <laughs> that's redundant. Anything but that's good Hebrew, though. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but but yeah, just like you said, this is the point of this parable: is that you know the loftiness of man. We we've totally missed the point of Christ and. And God's response, the master is in verse one and nine. He said, "Let's just hew them down. Let's let's mow down the trees." And the servant says, "Hey, give it a little bit more time." And it's it's because of that God's this is God's mercy on display to us. You know, like my my arm is still outstretched. You know, despite the fact that you look around and where where is the good fruit, Mike? You know, where where do you see the good fruit being born anywhere? Mm -hmm. you know, we're living in this time right now. There's there's not any. You know, the, um, on a personal level, a day-to-day -day level, we're looking at the global story. But what's really neat is um, it's always when he says, if the Gentiles repent. Uh, I like to break that down into like, you know, if Mike repents, um, I, he's going to have place with me. And I just really encourage all of our listeners and the saints um, to go back to the Book of Mormon, the simple gospel that, that contains this parable, and read looking for everything it tells you about Jesus and his mercy and his justice and his, his calling to you to come unto him and repent 
and follow him and just the simple doctrine and the power of the atonement of his blood that will that will cleanse you and bring you into his kingdom that that leads us to repentance if we focus our mind on that and away from the things of the world even away from uh, the status of the church where it's at today that doesn't diminish the beautiful doctrine of christ in the book of mormon and there's hope contained therein amen amen I was thinking of two things recently. One is this, how people were baptized with the Spirit, uh, like the Lamanites, even before they were baptized by water, yeah. by just repenting and, and, and coming unto Christ. And, um, and I'm also thinking of the high calling of the member of the body of Christ. Uh, set aside priesthood for a minute and just... When it talks about that if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, then you're called to speak with the tongues of angels, Mm -hmm. which angels speak the words of Christ, and that we are called as just members of the church, number one, if you haven't been baptized by the Spirit uh, or born of the Spirit, and I'm not talking about your confirmation when you're eight years old, I'm talking about born again of the Spirit, changed on the inner man. If you haven't, then that is something that has to transpire in each one of us. The Book of Mormon clearly talks about that path. And once you are, you're a new creature and you're called to speak with the tongues of angels in the word of Christ. Speak truth to each other, speak truth to the world, and and be a, a pillar of light to other people and to your brothers and sisters. And that's that's the calling of the member. And so we have a lifetime of work ahead of each one of us, whether you're a, a woman or a man or a child or an old person. Uh, as a member of the body of Christ. Yeah, and I like that you you pointed this out. To speak with the tongue of angels, Nephi explains what that means. He said, it's, he said, wherefore, when I'm talking about speaking with the tongue of angels, he said, and it's not speaking in tongues like some people in the kind of the assembly of God worship feel. It is. It means to speak truth with the authority of God because you've got his spirit in you. And that's, that's what it is. It's to speak with authority and truth. And in every man, woman, child who's been baptized by the Holy ghost can have that in, in terms of speaking truth with authority. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe next episode we can talk more about some of Zenus's other yeah. words and the scriptures and maybe bring in some of these other uh, prophecies back into, I, we've talked about these in different ways before, but I think it's always something again, as you see the conflict over in, in the middle East to think about uh, God's great plan. One of these days is going to be uh, bringing, bringing them to a knowledge of, of their savior. Yeah. I definitely think um, probably it, one more session, maybe two on this parable, of the olive tree. We'll go through it and tie in all these other scriptures and we'll see how this master restores the original fruit. It's amazing. And it's going to happen. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do today in my interaction with people, since you, you kind of <laughs> joked earlier, said, Oh, you spoke Hebrew. I'm going to purposely try to speak Hebrew today. So like when I say I'd like a black coffee, a coffee without cream and sugar or uh, <laughs> I love it. give me Speaking a plain chicken parallels. sandwich, a, a sandwich without condiments. <laughs> Just, I'm just going to reiterate my... I love that. Uh, I bet they'll still mess up your order. <laughs> yeah. All right. I love you, Kristen. My heart is warm for your for, for, for your inner being. <laughs> hey, it's always good to be with you, brother. Thanks. and um, Remember, we're walking each other home. While you yeah. walk to my house with me? Yeah. <laughs> Traveling together. 
walking on, each on other the same home. road yeah. while we get to our final destination or something like that. <laughs> Think how long our sermons would be. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we better end this. See you guys. Bye. You're so creative. I love that. <laughs> I'd like a black coffee. What of that?